0: CBP stories are behind-the-scenes looks at the lives of your peers who have had an inspiring journey to become who they are today. We hope that their experiences and insight will help you better yourself in some way. Cheers. Hello, Jamie. I'm very excited to hang out with you today and learn a little bit about how you became the man you are today. Now, Dave Gonzalez of Lost Worlds Brewing, who you were his employer at some point in time, he's the one who connected us and he right. cannot stop saying that you're one of the nicest guys in the world. Why do people think you're just the nicest person?
1: I don't know. In fact, just recently I was called an old shoe, and I had to think about what that meant. And uh, maybe that gives some insight. Uh, I think people are just comfortable around me. Uh, I guess I listen sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I don't
0: know. So. They're all great qualities, and it's great to talk to yeah. someone who, you know, who just has a smile on their face. It's nice to see that smile in the current state of things. So, one, well, appreciate you hanging out with me today. Definitely. Now, I'm in Virginia, so I've been lucky enough to enjoy Foothills for quite some time, yeah. and I see you cracking something right I now. I do have to crack a beer. It's us? time, right? It's time. What, what, what are you drinking today?
1: Uh, Hopium and YBA, It's our um, – can you see it? Um, yeah. That's our flagship beer. It's uh, about half our sales, so uh, it's important beer, one of my favorites, so.
0: Um, when you first brewed that beer, did you think it would be the one that just kind of consumed so much of your lineup? Um, you know, in the beginning, we sold more light
1: beer than anything. We started kind of early on, and uh, Winston-Salem didn't have a huge craft beer community, so um, no. I mean, yeah, I think I was hoping that eventually people would rate more IPA than light beer. And obviously, uh, at least in the craft beer world, that's definitely true now. Yeah.
0: And so. that's not a hazy either
1: nope uh it's almost like a east coast style it's a you know a little more amber and uh got a little bit of sweetness to it uh but it's
0: good one no it's absolutely a delicious one now one of my first memories of foothills i was driving through north carolina at some point i was going on a vacation to boone north carolina and you were at a good midpoint to stop for the night I i wanted to try the brew pub myself and i took this picture and i was able to find it in my archives and let's see if you can recognize what we're looking at right now. Do you know what is on my old That's a, is that a mushroom burger? No. Well, you're close. I think there might be mushrooms on top. But do you know what kind of meat is on that burger? What kind of
1: cheese? Probably is probably that, about uh, an kind a uh, gruyere or brie or
0: something? So it was an ostrich burger, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. We used to um, um, have all our grain went to an ostrich farmer and we would... Well, he wouldn't give us meat. He would allow us to buy meat from him, uh, but we had it for a long time, and then he started supplying Southern Foods, a big, bigger vendor, and that became his priority after a while. So, and he, he was our farmer, grain farmer, for a decade or so, um, and great guy. I still love him, but we we dropped him eventually because we got a call from a different grain farmer saying, "I didn't get grain this week." And we're like, who are you? And he's like, well, Paul's been selling me grain this week and Paul's been selling me grain and we were just giving it away, you know? Uh, so I was like, well, maybe that's not, maybe we're done with that relationship, (laughs) but.
0: Oh man, uh, that's interesting. So I guess no more ostrich burger on the menu.
1: Yeah. He had about a hundred ostrich, um, just outside of Winston about 20 minutes here. So, um, he had a pretty good herd. It was a little scary. Uh, to see all those birds in one place to be honest uh,
0: yeah i imagine they're a little intimidating once he, I he went would through-
1: come in with bruises sometimes where they they uh, beat him up a little bit yeah that, i mean they're they're big birds they're like dinosaurs you know?
0: <laughs> i wouldn't mess with an ostrich for sure yeah but yeah that was one of my memories of stopping through a long time ago <sighs> hope to make it back before too long because you're not too far away but it was just so interesting to see an ostrich burger in the menu that it stuck with me
1: yeah it was unique that's for sure um We had that probably for seven years or you know a little pretty good while we had on the menu but um yeah so uh, thanks for having me
0: no definitely so let's dive into you i mean obviously you've ran foothills brewing for quite some time now you've built a reputation of being the nicest guy in the world making delicious beer (laughs) but where did you grow up jamie
1: uh born in queens grew up in delaware and pennsylvania um just kind of around the border of wilmington um my dad worked for dupont and um they were based up there so um went to school up there um moved to georgia when i was 17. when i went to college you know i just it was, i went kind of a little bit young just um turned 18 while i was there um so university of georgia well, for an anthropology degree is what i what i went for and um after that i started brewing beer pretty soon after that my sophomore year college um, started homebrewing and within a few months, the guy who was buying homebrew supplies from became the brewer at the first brewery in Athens long before what
0: brewery was that
1: long before Terrapin and creature comforts. And, uh, it was blind man ales. The guy who I guess has gotten inheritance from his grandmother of $40,000. And that's all he ever put into it. Uh, so it was, a, it was a tough, I could, we could spend a whole hour just talking about that brewery and the flaws and interesting things that we did there uh but it was cool so i mean i've been working in a brewery since i was 19 and um i've been doing it my whole life basically my whole adult life basically
0: i love it so before you got into the craft beer world at age 19 you know if you were just a kid everybody had that dream of what they want to be when they grow up so if we were to you know interact when you were just say 10 years old what did you want to be back then <sighs>
1: You know, strange enough, uh, well, at least when I was a freshman in high school, I took a business class, and me and my buddy was sat in the back. We talked about how it would be cool to start a brewery. Um, so even as young as, you know, 13, 14 years old, I don't know why. Uh, it was just in my head that we were going to make beer one day. So, um, But before that, I, I mean, I don't even recall what I wanted to be, if I
0: was. Uh, <laughs> you don't meet a lot of brewery owners who had the dream since they were just a young teenager. I mean, what, was your dad a beer person back then, or did you have someone Love, in your life? He hardly
1: he hardly drinks. Uh, so I don't know what it, I don't know what it was. We were just just came up with the idea while we're sitting in the back of the classroom being deviants and uh, <laughs> and I didn't really think a whole lot of it after that for several years. You know, obviously um, I gone to school for like economics or something like that and quickly switched away from that to psychology, which I even more quickly switched away from to anthropology. And that was, I felt I took an anthropology class. I'm like, this is it, you know, it was, I feel comfortable here. And, um, you know, there's a large number of people in anthropology who um, brew beer. So it That's was- interesting. Uh,
0: so what about anthropology interested you? Um,
1: I think it's just, well, you know, study of culture and um, it's like, it's just, you learn about people and from different angles. And I think I've always been pretty good at reading people just, uh, kind of learning about culture and how, you know, people interact and from prehistoric time, you know, from all different kinds of times, um, you know, our focus was being at university of Georgia, it was focused on Southeastern Indians mainly, uh, and their culture and, um, the mound culture. Um, so it was just fascinating. All the, we were living in the area, that we were studying. Um, so all, we did a lot of field work uh, to tie in with the classes. And it was just such an easy connection for me. I, I don't know what it was, to be honest. But uh, you
0: know, the study of people is absolutely fascinating. So yes. you got connected to beer really quickly. But, you know, if you had pursued that degree, what did you think you were going to do with it even further following college? Uh,
1: I mean, I did some fields field work after school. I did some um, like data analysis at the University of Georgia Anthropology Lab. And then I worked part time at, um, well, a lot of jobs a brewery and delivering pizzas and some photography. And also there was a private firm, private anthropology firm in Athens and started working for them. And I worked there for about two or three years after I got out of school and uh, I was able to doing that and still working at a brewery. I was able to save a bunch of money uh, because all I did was work, you know, uh, (laughs) and, um, so that helped me start Foothills basically. Uh, you know, spent few, several years basically working 29, 30 days a month at uh, several jobs. And, uh, but I was, you know, focused, I guess, back then, you know, as I am now. But um, it was um, it was an interesting time back then. I was um, homebrewing a bunch. You know, every, we had a kind of open door culture at my apartment, and all my friends would be. We'd come in all the time. We'd be drinking different home brews and trying different stuff. Uh, and I still have a couple bottles of my first brew. Uh,
0: oh, my gosh.
1: I doubt it's very good because it's from 93. Uh, it's just like a, It was a Sam Adams Ale, Boston Ale clone. That's a, back when they still had Boston Ale. That was a long time ago. Uh, back then, the only craft beers we could get were Sam, Pete's Wicked, and uh, a little bit of Sierra Nevada, so we used to throw keg parties, and um, we get like a keg of Sierra Nevada stout and a keg of PBR. <laughs> like, if you like if you like craft beer, drink this. If not, just go with the PBR because you're not gonna
0: like that. So you and were said, educating oh, people even back then.
1: And you had to. I mean.
0: I know for me, the first homebrew that I brewed was a clone of Brooklyn Summer Ale. You know, it's nice to find something that you know that you want to recreate that's light and drinkable and you just want to share with your friends. Yeah, I bought
1: Charlie Papazian's book, um, but, you know, um, drove, got a ride to Atlanta because this is, you know, before cell phones or a lot of Internet. Right. So there was a homebrew shop in Atlanta. So that my first year of school, we drove down there and just to buy that book and um i read it over the summer and you know got into an apartment in second year of school and i was ready to go man
0: so we, I were think we bro- read that book we uh, converted yeah. a
1: closet into like uh put these two by 12s like big sh- heavy duty shelves and we had like 15 carboys uh you know we were brewing three times a week you know all the time so
0: at what point in time did you decide you wanted to stop working your, your, let's say your real job at that time to follow your passion and to go into brewing.
1: I mean, it's hard to discern because within months I was working at a brewery. So I was already in the industry. You know, I was, you know, spent three of my four years in college at working at a brewery as well as some other jobs, cause it didn't pay that great. But so it's, a, they just kind of weave together. Um, I mean, there was a, so many people in anthropology who brewed beer, several professors who brewed beer. I taught one of my professors how to brew beer. It was just, it was, it, it was it's hard to really separate them in my mind or my life because they really just came on at the same time. And I just kind of dove into, you know is
0: beer is such a big part of culture, even from, you know, early day cultures.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that was definitely a part of it is, um, you know, the the classic story about how civilization started. Well, if you want to make beer, you want to make alcohol, you got to stay somewhere and grow some kind of starch, right? Or sugar. So, um, you know, you have to, can't be nomadic if you want to have, have a yield of a crop, you know? So, uh, people had to sit, sit down in one place and turn from being nomadic hunter gatherers to, um, you know, more sedentary, um, lifestyle that included, you know, grain and yeast and and alcohol and beer. You know, Are there any
0: beer. early civilizations that you were really impressed by with regard to their production of beer? Uh, you know, in South America,
1: there's the Chica, and and obviously in Egypt they drank beer. I mean, you know, I never really delved into the a lot of the specifics of that, but uh you know, uh, I let Sam from Dogfish it do that. You
0: know, yeah, his- he, he does a good
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, and in fact, well, not to, uh, talk about anything crazy, but, um, you know, we made a, uh, back at the first brewery I worked out, we made an Indian brown ale, India brown ale, uh, like five or six years before it, the style was invented even. So
0: <laughs> and
1: how was so, it? It was good. Uh, the brewery was crazy. Uh, a quick story. I'll try to be quick about that. Go so on. we have, have pepto Bismo fermenters. They were single wall on wheels that we rolled out of an air conditioned room. That was our clock, our, we didn't have glycol control in any of the tanks. It was just in an AC room. We'd roll the fermenter over to the brew house area. The brew house was square, the kettle was square, the mash tun was square. They were old tofu cookers or something like that. That again, 40 grand doesn't buy a lot of equipment. Uh, and back then there really was no equipment for small breweries. I mean, you know, when blind man opened, there might have been 10 breweries in Georgia, you know, and South Carolina was probably zero and North Carolina, there was probably five or eight, you know, so we're talking, uh, you know, now the last count, I heard 372 in North Carolina, we were the 19th and we didn't even open that early, you know, so, but the equipment of blind man was very subpar. We had one pump. Uh, if you know, if you, I don't know how familiar you are with the brewing process, but we didn't have any tri clamps. All our connections were threaded fittings. And um, it was very rudimentary. It was like home brewing on, on 17 barrel scale. So it took us about 18 hours to make a batch of beer and another eight hours the following day to clean up.
0: Oh my <laughs> awesome God.
1: So no temperature control, no pressure control in the tanks. So all of our beer was naturally carbonated. We would prime with uh, some uh, beer. We'd pull off a little beer from a batch and just you know, prime with just natural sugar. And um, so we had some, definitely had some inconsistency problems to say the least, but uh, a third of the beer was great. A third of it was probably undercarbed and the third was overcarbed. <laughs> uh, we were bottling out of brew buckets and it was literally a homebrew in on a large scale uh it was it was a trip i
0: imagine it was quite the learning experience but looking back on that experience a blind man is there something that you learned that still helps you to this day or is it more so Uh, definitely It, it
1: it taught me what you can do with little and that you know it's very hard for me to hear the word no we can't do that in other words we can't do that because being from a place where you had to overcome so much adversity, you know, uh, it was just. Now we have much better equipment, and so when I hear we can't do that, I, I, you know, it, it taught me to get it done at all costs. And no, that makes sense. I think that's generally good, not always, but uh, yeah, we definitely learned to get a lot done with little, and so we were selling beer across Georgia, in North Carolina, like up at. Uh, Barley's Taproom in Asheville back in, you know, 94, 95, when that place was just opening and becoming, you know, uh, you're familiar with Barley's? Andrew, you appear to be frozen. Uh, I'll just keep talking. I and mean, that was a place that, um, Skyland Distributing, uh, had a, um, a distributor in Georgia and then one in North Carolina. You there? Andrew. (laughs) You there? I see you.
0: Are you there? I apologize for that. This is the way the internet does not like me and my power just went in and out.
1: Okay, no, I saw you frozen. Yeah. I was we were selling beer up at Barley's Taproom in in North Carolina. Do you familiar with that place? Uh, in Asheville. I am uh, yeah, it was one of the first basically the first craft beer bar that i was aware of uh there really wasn't anything like that in georgia and um so we were filling cakes going you know up heading up there in 94 95 and now i have friends from north carolina who you know who used to go there and drink that beer at the time they're like oh yeah i you know i knew that beer even though they didn't know me Uh, so uh we started doing some several beer festivals in north carolina and uh we used to take the first 10 gallons of every batch and like the first runoff, you know, the high, high strength stuff. And uh, we'd boil it down and make really high alcohol beer, you know, 12, 13% beer. And we would always bring that to these beer festivals. And um, it was really fun because most people never had beer that strength. Um, You know, this was long before pop the cap and, you know, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, the alcohol laws were, five or six percent alcohol so we were making some fun beers uh you know even even way back then um you know uh, there was a homebrew club in athens called uh brew 52s and um that was um you know definitely learned a lot at that club uh spent a lot of time trying different beers and you know getting a lot of feedback at the time so you there andrew still 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 freezing up
0: Jamie, I don't know what's going on in my world of internet today. I'm pretty sure I'm
1: stable here, um, here at work, um, so.
0: Yeah, no, it's all on me. My lights just flickered in my home for whatever reason. It's not stormy, and I wish I could blame the crazy Virginia weather, but I don't have that good excuse today.
1: Well, you're in uh, Norfolk?
0: Yeah, I'm in Norfolk, Virginia, so not terribly far from you. Yeah, cool. But I do have a question for you, so I want to back up for just a second. So. Working in the breweries in these early days, I mean, you started when you were 19, you said. Were you primarily working in the back of house in production?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, the first brewery I worked at, there was, you know, you got to go way back in time because it was a production brewery. Blind Man Ales was a production, but there were no tasting rooms. There were, there were no tasting rooms allowed back then, you know, so. Yeah,
0: especially a, in Georgia
1: yeah, particularly in Georgia. Right. So it was 3000 square foot, um, just production. so we would, uh, do the only customer facing stuff we had is if we did an event at a bar in Athens or in Atlanta or, in, or in Asheville where we sold. So it was all production, you know, brewing and packaging, you know, so, um, then the second brewery I worked at was uh, Vista brewing in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, just on uh, two blocks from the Capitol on park and Gervais. This guy had a French fine dining restaurant, French chef, uh, French sous chef, you know, like even back in 90, I started working there in 96, you know, like $35 entree This was expensive for back then. Um, he had gambling there, a raw bar on the bar, like oysters, you know, on the half shell, and a tiny little brewery, seven barrel. Um, and it was actually somewhat real equipment. Um, so, but he didn't want a full-time brewer. He had had one, the friend, old friend of mine, actually, from Athens. Uh, he um, had to bartend, manage. So I was doing several other things working at blind man and doing archeology. span So I said, how about, how about this? I'll just come there, make beer and I'll leave. And you, you know, pay me by the day. So it worked out good for me. Cause I could go down and work for three days and, you know, make some pretty good money for, especially for a brewer back then. And it worked good for him. He said, you come brew the beer. I'll pay you. I just don't want to hear anything about it. Uh, <laughs> and it was a little bit tough because working in a brewery remote is not easy. I'll generally keep a bartender as like an assistant brewer who would help me pull gravities or drop some yeast or whatever it was. But it was challenging because when I'd I'd have to coordinate the grain deliveries for when I was there. And the chef, it was kind of a kind of an ass, honestly, uh, he wouldn't let any of the cooks help unload grain. Right? And so we kept grain in the basement. So I would have to, you know, there'd be two pallets on the truck in the back. I'd have to first get each bag to the back of the truck, 53 footer, you know, 80 bags of grain, quite a bit, you know, then get it off the truck. And I'm not a big guy, you know, off the truck, one bag at a time, inside, down the steps, onto the pallet, back up. And I'd be like, can any of these guys help me? You know, it takes me like three hours to do this. Nope. Nope. That's your job. So, you know, uh, it is what it is. Right. So of course, they I'm were not.
0: concerned about those $35 entrees.
1: Right. I mean, <laughs> it was the weirdest brewery. Uh, and I worked there for, I mean, it was, it was great because from a beer perspective, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Uh, as long as I didn't have to spend don't even spend any real money, you know? Uh, but I, so I got to try out a lot of different recipes and, uh hops and yeasts and uh at least what was available back then you know there's not near the variety and back then like Columbus and Cascade was like ooh, you know like revolutionary hops so uh <laughs> you know Mount Hood and Willamette you know a lot of the old traditional hops East Kent Goldings you know uh but anyway I got a lot of freedom to just try different stuff and it it helped me kind of hone some recipes on a, large, a little larger scale. And
0: while you were working there, were you already thinking about moving to North Carolina at all, or how did you end up leaving uh, that Yeah, head?
1: so I actually lived in three different places while I worked at that same brewery. A in Athens, then two of my friends moved to uh, outside of Asheville, a town called Bat Cave, uh, small little town on top of a mountain, and, uh, and i barely lived. I was barely there because I was either brewing beer or I was doing archaeology. At that so point. how
0: far was the commute to the brewery from the Batcave? So
1: in Athens, it was two and a half hours. In Batcave, it was two and a half hours. And then um, I eventually got out of archaeology um, and got a job at Old Hickory Brewery in Hickory. And Hickory was also two and a half hours from Columbia. So I maintained that job. I'd go down for two or three days, you know, and it really wasn't a huge time commitment. Um, but at Old Hickory, uh, not only did I do the uh, Steven is the owner and he was the brewmaster, uh, but I did a lot of the production, either me or m- him and me. But uh, I also did all the beer festivals and uh, sold beer and Hickory, Boone, and Asheville out of my car, you know, uh, my old Subaru, and so I was. You know, I was young, twenty, early 20s, and just couldn't work enough. Um, I eventually quit the job in Columbia because of the time commitment on the weekends. Well, it was starting to be a lot of, not a lot, some festivals, or we'd be doing events with beer and that kind of stuff. So um, eventually just switched to that one job. Uh, and it was a little sad to leave Columbia, but it was, you know, the ownership changes and, the is this guy has graduated from University of Columbia, University of South Carolina, Columbia at twenty two, his dad bought him this restaurant, you know, and it it didn't last a year, you know, because he didn't know what he was doing. I, I quickly saw that and got out of
0: there. So, so that's a great point you make there. I mean, because you've talked a lot about your you know history on the brewing side of the operation, but there's so much knowledge needed on the business side of the operation. So at what point in time did you kind of kind of start fine-tuning your business acumen that would kind of lead to opening up the brewery?
1: So just being in the beer business, you're around a lot of restaurants. Um, I didn't participate in the restaurant business in Columbia, and I didn't do a lot in uh, in Hickory either because they had you know they had two restaurants and we were either you know making beer to sell to accounts or to those two restaurants and. Um, know definitely learn some stuff about inventory and ready to sale and cleaning lines it was all back of the house stuff you know um so but you absorb a lot of information about how restaurants run and um you know just being in manager meetings with the with the the cooks and the managers of the restaurants you just kind of absorb a lot of that information um i left old hickory you know we built a second facility and so I learned a lot about you know, brewery construction. We went up to Massachusetts, uh, broke down two different breweries, took everything, stripped, stripped electrical boxes off the wall. I mean, everything. And put it in trucks and moved it down to North Carolina. And then we rebuilt it over about a year and a half. Uh, the guys had bought old building and, you know, so at the first brewery, you know, that. The original brewery, uh, which is now called Amos Howard's. I had to work at night because the brewery was in the kitchen was in the middle of the brewery. There were three different rooms where the beer was and in between all that was the kitchen. So I didn't start till they mopped the floor in the kitchen. That's when I came in and started worked all night. Um, and then by the time they were coming in, they'd usually cook me some eggs and I go home. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was you know it was very different and then uh, then i had to kind of do that and help build the brewery so i was just working all the time and it sounds
0: like you're learning a lot about what you did not want to do when you opened your own place
1: (laughs) i'm still very involved in the construction projects and all that i mean it's it's invaluable to know that kind of stuff because you know kind of tying in with the first job i had where we had nothing you know then we had an opportunity to at least have some good good equipment and learn about how it goes together and help diagnose problems and you know i, I look at things from a different perspective a lot of times on our team so when they have something wrong i, I just come down brainstorm with them and help kind of get to the root of the issue because um uh, you know just just having some real rudimentary experience uh doing that stuff, you know but nowadays we try to hire experts whenever possible (laughs) because they do better and they have time you know it's their job
0: 100 percent. and i'm a lot like you i like to absorb as much information as i can to try to have somewhat of a understanding on everything that i'm touching but you know everybody has tasks they don't like doing what's the one thing you don't enjoy at at the brew pub (sighs)
1: that i don't like now
0: or say back then and how it's changed over time even.
1: Um gosh, I really love this business. Uh it's the HR part is the part I don't like. Uh you know, just you gotta have employees. But employees can be they can be tough. You know, they they, they take a lot of management and uh uh coaxing and you know, support. And I'd say that although I like hanging out with them. I don't always like the HR part of it, I'm not an enforcer at all. So I try to lead by example and, you know, I'm more of that kind of person than, you know, micromanager or um, enforcer, disciplinary and I am not. (laughs)
0: And to go back to something you said a moment ago, that's why we hire experts, people who are better at these things than we will ever be.
1: That's right. Nowadays, well, Nowadays is different, but for for a good period of time, I focused on hiring people from larger breweries and I still would if we could, but now there's so much competition for people. Now it's as much different, you know, it's the, our hiring, our type of hiring we do has changed a lot over the years. Um, but anytime I can find someone from a larger brewery, um, Is we try to, you know, our facilities managers worked at Avery for several years and Sweetwater before that, uh, Doug, our brewery supervisor. Um, he worked at Southern tier up in, uh, New York, you know, about a hundred, hundred thousand barrel brewery, uh, TL, our brewmaster. He's more like me. He was a history major and, uh, got into brewing. He was from, um, grew up, he went to school in Knoxville, UT. And, um, so me and him, we were like best buds for a long time. And before cell phones or anything, I would call the restaurant he's working at and, Hey, uh, is TL, you know, ask the hostess, is, is TL there today? And, you know, oh yeah, hold on, but it's lunch. Can, we need the line in case someone calls the restaurant. Can he call you later? You know, uh, but you know, there wasn't that many people in the beer business back then. So the few people that were, we were really tight and, um, you know, we just learned to, it was a very small community. So um, everyone had this sense of camaraderie and it's still that way to a large degree. But now with I mean, most breweries are owned by people who were in other industries before and made a bunch of money, retired and, you know, want to be an alcohol business because it's very glamorous, you know, or they think it is. Uh, so it wasn't like that back then. It was You know, things scratch together and people trying their hardest every day uh, just to, you know, stay open. (laughs) So So how
0: do you feel about that? How do you feel about people coming in from other industries with very, with lesser brew knowledge? You know, for
1: for years and years, um, Paul, you know, Paul says at the Brewers Association, you know, I've been going to that CBC for, you know, quite a while now. And um, every year they get up there and talk about how. The industry was being held back by lack of capital. Um, there was no money in it, right? I mean, even foothills, we started with about $200,000 and a bunch of loans, you know, that's all the money we ever had. Uh, and that's the way most breweries were, you know, you hear the story of Sam and dog with the, the half a barrel system or Ken Grossman or, you know, new Belgium, all very, um, you know, humble beginnings. Uh, because there was no cash, no no one wanted to put cash into beer that they didn't like. You know, no one liked craft beer back then. It's like you had to talk them into trying. You know, Um, and it was a lot more passion, I think, than now. A lot of people do brewery for fun. If it doesn't if it doesn't work, so what? You know, Um, so it's a little bit different, but. I think overall it was great for the industry just to have capital coming in because, um, people are much more aware of crap beer in general. I mean, back then it was, no. was struggled to even get them to take a sip. Uh, and you know, now it's, It's not like that
0: now. What do you think about the level of collaboration these days? Because, you know, back probably when you when you opened your brewery, you knew everyone in the craft beer industry, probably within the entire state and beyond. Now, with 300 plus breweries in Carolina, you know, how relationship based is it within the industry between brewery owners now?
1: Um, Well, a lot of us still make an effort to be friends and to continue to communicate. Um, yeah, I'm, I've been, this is my 11th year on the board of the North Carolina Brewers Guild. I've been president for seven of those years or something like that. And I'm past I president. I heard you
0: all had a great event yesterday as well. What did you say? I heard you had a great event yesterday, the Bruce Smart event.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, we do that. I, did, I didn't go this time, but, um, and now that I'm past president, I'm kind of trying to back out a little bit and let everybody kind of take the helm. I have one more year and then I'll be. I think I'll be done for good. Cause it was only a six year, you know, only live on for six years. And this is my second six year stint somehow. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, so we, the guild and, you know there's also the, the several, the five alliances across North Carolina and all of us spend a lot of time ma- making effort to continue to get people together. Uh, you know, the guild has the North Carolina Craft Brewers Conference here in Winston uh, every year for the past five or six years. so we typically get about 600 attendees for that and, you know, small compared to the national conference, but uh, pretty good size for North Carolina. And it's a, just a great way to get owners and brewers in the same space and uh, just to talk. And because brewers thrive on communication and collaboration and um, you know, a lot of us, I, you know, I, I never went to beer school, you know, so I, I don't have that technical training. So, um, and, you know, but I have a lot of other experience, so it, get people together with different kinds of experience, it's, um, you know, it's a win. So, you know, yeah, I uh,
0: think always, we can learn so much from one another.
1: I just want to, I want to throw out just real quick, a little uh, plug. We're doing a collaboration beer with, uh, we've done it several times, but uh, it's called Old Rabbit's Foot. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but uh, it's uh, Duck Rabbit, Old Hickory Brewery, and Foothills. Uh, so I think we first did it back in 2011 or something like that, and then we've done it several times over, over the years, uh, but not for about four years. I think the last time we did it, so it's That's coming out do. in October. So, uh, just communicating earlier today with Stephen and Paul about getting their barrels you know, it's a barrel age. We all take our barrel age imperial stouts and blend it all together, one beer. So, um it's makes for a very unique um, beer.
0: So. No, that sounds fantastic. And that's great. You've maintained that relationship. How many years have you done it now?
1: Uh, well, we don't do it every year, but I think this is the fifth or sixth time we've done it. So it, it's a fun thing that, um, I, mean, we, I mean, you know, or I'm sure you're familiar with our beer sexual with chocolate. Uh, you know, as far as I know, it was pretty much the first beer release in the Southeast or I don't want to say the first, cause I'm sure there was something else. Uh, but you know, it was the first large scale one anyway, where we'd get several hundred people and, uh, you know, it kind of back then it was like dark Lord and darkness. And, uh, what's that other one? Bourbon County. And that was about it, you know, um, It wasn't a lot of people didn't do beer releases. It was just something that didn't really happen. Um, And, you know, once they popped the cap here in North Carolina, we started, of course, immediately started making other beer styles because it's very limiting to be under six, you know. Um, So, you know, I've always loved that. I think it goes back to, you know, my study of culture and people. It's just love that bringing people together um, in that kind of, you know, unfiltered state. You know, we used to have these beer releases where we'd, you know, people, we'd let people bring all this beer in from across the, any, the world, the country, but also, you know, from anywhere. And just we'd open up the back of our brewery area, not our serving area up front, but just let people try different beers and sample. Obviously, this is all pre COVID, you know, but um, I, did you hear me mention Brew 52s earlier? we were cutting out okay so that was the beer club the homebrew club in athens we had another club um called the yeasty boys and you know i think i you know obviously referenced it i was 19 when i started brewing beer below the drinking age right so this was a group of older guys who loved beer did not homebrew but would as they traveled would bring beers from all over and we'd all get together once a month we ate great beers um you know it was a one one two or three that's was it, it was real simple uh and uh definitely get well, we used to see a bunch of the bells uh stouts that you know they have like even back then they had like five different stouts it, you know all kinds of you know belgians that were the ones that were available anyway uh you know because much less variety you know back then was available so uh, that you know just that idea of freeform sampling and I just have always loved that and getting people together and you know what do you like what do you like to try this and it was always um, a lot of fun you know so that's
0: the best part the social aspect I know what we all miss so much and look forward to getting back to
1: yeah the COVID has been been tough for um, you know our well everybody but like our sales team we have a pretty large set of 12 people on our sales team and uh you know, I know for them, they went from mainly on-premise work to working, you know, packing beer in grocery stores. And I know, you know, they're, they're happy to be back at it. selling on the on-premise, of course, you know, now we're waffling, we're kind no, of absolutely. teetering on the edge here of, you know, are we going to stay open? You know, we, we in fact, we've seen a lot, some a lot of accounts move back to the one, six barrels here in the past month or so as things have gotten, you know, more, um, a high alert again is you know a lot of accounts lost a lot of money on beer um you know when everything shut down so i think they're a little gun shy of having a bunch of inventory which i i'm full support of you know i mean fresh beer is the best there's no reason to have a bunch of inventory of beer yeah we'll, we'll make more you know so um
0: yeah hopefully but, the conditions in the world start to get better we can get through this together yeah so so I want um, yes. to go back, when you did the sexual chocolate release, that first release, was it your goal to make it a repeated event, or did someone, you or someone at the brewery just have this idea, hey, wouldn't this be fun, let's give it a shot, and how did it transfer? Pretty much,
1: yeah, I just, we made a, a double IPA, uh, that was the first high alcohol beer we did, and and then we're like, well, let's make an Imperial style, I mean, there, there were barely any double IPAs around back then, because, yeah you weren't allowed to make them. Uh, So we made an Imperial stout and just so happened it was kind of ready by Valentine's day. I mean, the first year we made it, it was all draft, no bottles. And so it was just, you got to remember back then, nobody canned beer, you know, so it was all bottles. So we were doing, Uh, well, first year we did draft and we had just random people calling the restaurant saying, if I bring in a 12 inch bottle, can I, can you fill it for me or can I tell me how I can fill bottles off a of growler? You know, it's weird questions like that. Like, well, I don't recommend that. You know? <laughs> uh, so we said, all right, we probably need to bottle this beer next year because we're getting, we had a it was weird to get those kind of calls because there wasn't, you know, just that it wasn't they kind of uh, consumer interaction really back then. Uh, you know, Beer Advocate had just been come out, and you know, Beer Advocate for whatever it is now. I mean, I, I'm not don't frequent it as much as I used to, but it really was social media before there was social media. There were beer, beer people who got on there and talked about beer. And They were back and forth, and um, you know, we we utilized that in the early years to get the word out to people. You know what we were doing. So the second year we made it, we did like 500 bottles and uh we used we literally used like a, a Blickman beer gun it's a little homebrew device mm-hmm. and that's how we filled them you know, we all we stood in the cooler and just filled them off a tank and it was far from ideal but um you know we saw them all like you know quickly and it was this weird uh phenomenon that started <laughs> so
0: that second year i imagine you had a little bit more planning go behind because you knew what to expect at least a little bit from that first time Doing the we kept it
1: very controlled, um, even for all the beer we put out now, uh, when we make that beer, usually 90% of the volume, 80 percent of the volume goes to draft. Um, we always wanted to. So, you know, just backing up, let's back up again. You know, I left Old Hickory after about four and a half years. Um, we had built that brewery, and um, I, I wanted to build a brand. And these guys weren't quite ready to do that yet you know we had a they had the restaurants and we sold some beers to places but i kept kind of was like let's do more let's do more and um anyway i decided i needed to do my own thing right so i actually now i'm gonna go back to my buddy dave who um he was the brewer of vista from athens uh i'm still friends with him to this day you know he called me he said oh there's a guy just thinking about starting a brewery in winston so I connected with it was three other guys actually. So we connected, and um, I moved moved to Winston. Uh, actually, took a detour to a brewery in Greenville, South Carolina, Blue Ridge Brewing. Uh, Bob was one of our original investors. So his brewery, he needed a brewer. So I w- I moved down there. Just I mean I, I owned a home in Hickory, where my girlfriend now wife, uh, you know, was living there, and so I started. I was just in. South Carolina during the week, uh, then I'll be back home. And, um, so I worked down there while we were opening foothills and that took okay. about a year and a half to get everything, you know, kind of, kind of ready. Um, and then, so we opened just as a brief up because back then that's all there was, there were no, really, was no such thing as tasting rooms. You know, uh, it this wasn't, you know, Highland was, open. let's say there was Highland, no tasting room. Old Hickory had a restaurant, but no tasting room at the brewery. Red Oak, no tasting room. Uh, Whipping Radish was around. They were a restaurant. Uh, Carolina Brewing Company and Carolina Brewery, both in Chapel Hill, Holly Springs, uh, they had opened. I mean, there were not many other breweries b- besides that. And the model was a lot of wood and food. You know, brewpub. That's you know, that was the model. If you're going to open a brewery, that's what it was. Um, so when we opened, that was our, our focus uh, and to one of your questions earlier, we hired some people who were in, you know, knowledgeable, in the restaurant, including my wife uh, who was in fine dining for many years. Um, so she kind of helped us elevate our food, you know, and we also hired our original chef and sous chef were from a place called Noble's Grill. Uh, which is now Roosters, uh, a couple of them in Charlotte and, and up here in Triad, we're, uh, fine dining, right? That's Sarah worked there while we were opening the rest of the f- opening foothills here in Winston. And then she transitioned to working at the brew pub. Uh, and
0: that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, had you worked with your wife prior?
1: No, no. Because um, she was in fine dining and I was at a brewery. So it, it was fine because we have much different um you know, focuses, you know, hers is on service and food and um hospitality in general. And mine with more on production and uh just you know trying to focus on quality and quality and production, you know. Um and then after about half a year we started to develop some off or half a year to a year, some off site accounts. We went back to Hickory and excuse me, Boone, Asheville, where I had previously sold beer and kind of reestablished some of those contracts, contacts um, and started selling beer in those markets. Um, so we were self-distributing and we did that from uh, 2006 until 2013. Um, we were definitely one of the largest, still even, uh, self-distributing breweries in North Carolina. Not the largest, uh, but we did about 13,000, 14,000 barrels and self-distribution and that was all draft because we still we were all, all you know most of it was out of a group we did about eight thousand barrels out of our up then we built the psyllium and now our uh kimwell it's on kimwell drive um that's where we have a 50 barrel brew house that we bought from it's the old carolina blonde brewery in mooresville and uh we bought that equipment actually our first brewery uh that was the old Cottonwood Brewery in Boone from a long time ago and then you know the Carolina Blonde Brewery bought the Cottonwood brands mm-hmm. and they were made in Mooresville and then we bought that brewery too and then eventually we ended up buying the brands uh, as well so it was kind of a long twisted fate uh, with, with those guys but um, you know so so we self distributed we had you know guys at Asheville Boone we were going up there, Charlotte and eventually the Triangle and, um, you know, that was a big focus for us for several years. You know, as the restaurant was going, you know, the restaurant was growing and then we we're growing the brand out there in the market, just draft. Uh, and definitely learned a lot doing that. We, you know, we had done a little bit at Old Hickory, but it was not near the scale that, you know, we ended up doing. Um, And we had like nine trucks out there, you know, driving around delivering beer. Um, it was really the triangle that blew up for us. And today that's still our largest, even bigger than our home market. Uh, the Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill is, is just a monster market for us. So.
0: I mean, craft beer is growing exponentially in Carolina, but why do you think in those early days you saw success in places like the triangle? And you know, how were you educating guests about the value in the craft beer you were making?
1: Say that again, sorry.
0: How are you best able to connect with the customers back then? Because obviously craft beer was still a new thing, so to speak. So how are you educating them about what you were doing? A lot of
1: events, a lot of samplings. We used to do cask events. Uh, that was really popular. I mean, we used to have, go to do cask events at restaurants, you know, in our place too. But when we do it in restaurants, there'd be lines out of the door. Like, like, what are these? Why are they just people had never heard of it. They didn't know what it was. They, they wanted a little piece of that of the craft beer world and the culture. Um, you know, one of the first accounts we started selling to up in the triangle was on uh, the Tyler's tap room. Uh, if you remember that, or yeah, it, actually, it's actually all of them are, I believe closed now, but, um, you know, we went up and met with Tyler, Daniel and, um, Rob, who were the three owners, me and, um, my head sales guy at the time. And we're like, look, we want to sell beer up here. You know, what do we gotta do to work with you guys? And, Tyler was an old uh, Red Hook employee with AB, or before it was AB, you know, from even, you know, from West Coast. And um, they're like, well, you got to come, we need you to- if you're going to, we're, we're going to sell you beer, we got to, you got to commit to us. Like, we don't want like two weeks of beer. And then you say, I don't, oh, I'm out or I'm out of that beer. I'll- how about this one? Because that's still to this day, a huge problem. Uh, somewhat of a self-inflicted problem in our industry is uh, people don't like to make the beer, the same beer twice a lot of times. Of course, I, I still think there's a room for uh, core brands and flagships uh, in the market. We would maybe not be open today if, if not for flagships, you know. But So that's what they wanted. They're like, we want to be able to know that we're going to have the same beer available all the time, you know. So we said, yeah, we'll do it. And, um, you know, they really supported us as well as, a bunch of, you know, the triangle was, um, didn't have that many breweries. I mean, back then, I think there was a time when Charlotte had no breweries. We bought when we bought the Kenilat blonde brewery, I think that was the only one or there was, there had been a wave of breweries before that. Like, uh, you heard of Johnson's brewing
0: from, I have not
1: no. it's, uh, from like the early nineties, the guys from old Hickory bought that equipment too. So, uh, they, they used to buy a bunch of equipment. Of anywhere they'd see stuff, use equipment, they were always buying it. So, like after work, we'd drive to Charlotte and load equipment and then drive back. Uh, and, but there, there was a whole wave of, of breweries that opened that didn't make great beer and um, didn't make it, you know. Um, I mean, that, so, yeah, anyway, so we went to the Triangle. that. that Market was just really blooming, and with all the, there's a lot of education there. I mean, Durham is one of our, still one of our very best markets to this day, and the penetration of uh, money from the school and the hospital uh, and all the other stuff around there, uh, and a ton of education. You know, that's just uh, primes a pump for craft beer sales, and uh, we were it used to be you'd walk into a bar in Durham and you get you walk out with three taps. It was, it was pretty easy to sell beer back then. You know, Uh, they were just receptive and and people just wanted whatever you had. They just wanted something new, something with a story, you know, so. um,
0: That story component, absolutely huge.
1: Yeah, and we did, uh, we did well. And, you know, eventually when we got into bottles, we decided to um, stop distributing and move to wholesalers because we ended up with like 600 accounts, 550 to 600 accounts. Uh, that was just draft. And it was, I knew that we're not one of the breweries that have started with uh, cash flush. You know, we were a bunch of loans and stuff. We kind of had to make a decision to buy equipment and build this facility or buy more trucks and hire delivery drivers. And it just wasn't realistic that we were going to be able to do both successfully because, Well, there's 140 Harris Teeters, there's 490 food lions, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to deliver to all these stores successfully and, you know, pull up the beer. It was an impossibility for us to, uh, you know, it's it's different in some markets, Raleigh or or Charlotte, they're very focused markets as far as uh, geographically and population-wise. So it's a little easier to service those markets. The triad is very spread out. So we were, you know, we're two hours from everything, two hours from Asheville, Raleigh, an hour and a half from Charlotte. So anywhere we went, we had to, you know, drive. So, um, it wasn't like, um, we could really put five guys in Charlotte cause they'd all have to drive an hour and a half to get there, you know? Um, so it market was different. You know, the acceptance level in other in restaurants was much less overall right now pretty much every restaurant's got some craft beer in it. Uh, you know, not everyone, but 90% of them do. you know, at least at least Sierra Nevada or, you know, or something. Um, so it was a hard decision. And although I love our distributor, we work with for the most part, uh, every day, not a day goes by where I don't think, man, if we were self-distributing, we would have, you know, because now we have to, you know, we wouldn't, we sell beer and then we step back and let our distributors handle it. And there's definitely instances where stuff doesn't get done, you know, or it, it missed the delivery day or the order was wrong. You know, back then we would do anything we could to get beer to people because we were, you know, trying hard to grow the brand and uh, it's very and you've
0: Grown the brand a ton over the past. I mean, how many years are you at now?
1: Uh, we just hit our. Uh, In march was our 16th
0: yeah i mean and that's amazing and it's amazing what you've created in that time you have three locations now you know what's next do you have any other boxes on that list you'd like to check off for personally or professionally
1: um you know to be in this in this during this wave of so many breweries um my our, you know, personal focus, you know, so there were four of us, four investors when we started and now there's two, we bought two of them out along the way. Uh, Matt and I both have, you know, wife and families and we all, we both have all girls. So a lot lot of, a lot of girl power here. Um, But we, we kind of switched focus, you know, like, you know, it's very much harder to grow rapidly now uh, with so much competition and it's hard to, you know, break through, it's much harder to break through as far as getting information out there and that kind of stuff, uh, because there's so much noise with 370 breweries compared to 19. Um, you know, we're the 19th open. So we, we've kind of switched focus to uh, satisfaction, uh, employee satisfaction, personal satisfaction, focus on profitability, um, and just, you know, take care of our employees the best we can. You know, and to me, that's a big, you know, part of um, feel good kind of thing is to have people who grow, you know, move here and start families and grow wealth. You know, Winston's not as exciting of a town as Asheville or Charlotte or Raleigh or Charleston or, you know, wherever. So when we recruit people, we have to be like, well, it's a really great cost of living. And it's really great schools here. So if you have kids, you know, so it's not quite – it's a different uh, kind of recruiting here. But uh, uh, I don't know. Box I'd like to check
0: off. Well, how about personally? You know, you've succeeded so much professionally, and you've created a great culture at Foothills. But personally, I mean, do you want to travel? Do you want to open another business? I know you're passionate about coffee as well. Are there any other risks you'd like to take in your life?
1: Right. I mean, we're growing our coffee business and that's really exciting for us. So uh, we're making cold brew coffee for us and for some other uh, coffee roasters, too, because we kind of see that as uh, something a lot of coffee roasters can't do. You know, making beans and brewing large scale amounts of liquid are, are very different you know, things. So um, I definitely want to grow the coffee business. Uh, that's, that's definitely a goal. Um, and you know, like i do a little farming at my house. So we bring in vegetables for the restaurant and, uh, uh, and although right now it's just me, uh, I I hope to be able to get some employees out there, try to have some different kind of, uh, you know, everybody gets stuck in a rut. It'd be nice to be able to do something like that. You know, have employees kind of work a shift a week or, and, you know, be a little more, do more with that in our restaurant, you know, and not only farm to table, but, you know, really, coming from one source, you know, uh, from so we I do a little bit, but uh, it's definitely a goal to incorporate more of our our own food at a, at a restaurant. So,
0: no, that's fantastic. And as we've kind of talked about as we wind down right now, what a weird year and a half it's been. You're married. You've got two girls. How do you maintain you know a great quality of mental health in your life? How do you kind of take time for you to just sit back, step away from the brewery, and enjoy the moment?
1: I work in my yard, Um, whether it's, you know, I I live on um, a little Yadkin River here in town. So it's like a floodplain. And so I'm out there planting, weeding, mowing, harvesting, you know, just that kind of stuff. and Or or just mowing around out there, you know, trying to find ways to keep the deer away. Uh, I really enjoy just decompressing out there. And it's very quiet, you know, very quiet. And... Yeah, you know, we moved out there because of that. You know, there's a very social life at the um, you know working in a brewery. so it's nice to be able to go home and just not have any any social life. <laughs> uh, it's been tough, man. You know, our 15th anniversary is uh, our anniversary is on St. Patrick's Day, and which is a great day for our anniversary. Our 15th anniversary in March 17th, 2020. Uh, instead of celebrating our anniversary, the state closed down all the on-premise, and we laid off hundred employees. That was the opposite. You know, that was had to be the worst day that we've ever had in this business. Uh, and then we realized we probably shouldn't have laid off all the brewery people because it went from, you know, we're a large, we do a large amount of draft still to this day. You know, we were, for a long time, we were a hundred percent draft and, um, that's one of the things I think helped our brand be successful is we were really, uh, it was a little bit hard to get because it was draft only, you know, so that, but we had built a very good following. So that by the time we did get the package, you know, a lot of people already knew our brand. Um, so, you know, then with COVID everything went from draft to packages, you know, so we had to do ultimately is less beer, but way more packages. So, you know, we're all our accountants and, everybody was in the back, you know, packing boxes of bottles or cans. and um, It was, it was a crazy, crazy time. Like it was for all brewers. Um, we definitely um, had a great support, you know, from uh, all the local people buying our beer and uh, you know, food and to go food and all that. It was a, uh, couldn't have asked for better customers as far as uh, support during all that. Um, so yeah, we're I can't wait to get out of it. I'll tell you, I, I actually had a thirteen years ago I had a kidney transplant. So I'm kind of, I'm immunocompromised. So even through all of this, we were self distributing. I mean I was on dialysis for a year, uh doing it at home. I was at home dialysis, then working, you know, all day and, and it was uh it was a crazy time. But I'm, I'm I love the industry, so I it's never really like work. You know, I just I love everything about it
0: oh yeah i mean you get to talk to great people you get to brew great beer you build relationships and the people the
1: community uh i mean why did i choose beer over archaeology because at the end of the day watching someone you know drink a product that you made and with a smile on their face um is extremely satisfying to me and archaeology was kind of like gypsy being like a gypsy go where the work is Uh, not quite as not nearly as satisfying at a personal level
0: so. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just the simple things like being in your lawn, getting a little bit dirty, drinking beer at the end of the day, sometimes all by yourself. That's all we need, just that moment you can feel zen. And
1: it's yeah. amazing
0: learning from you and hearing all that you've done and what you've learned over the years. So, Jamie, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. It's been a really fun time. Yeah, Hopefully quick hour. Meet it's nice to have that interaction.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, well, I really appreciate you having me on, Andrew. And, uh you know,